Wessex LMC's supporting you and your practice. Can I welcome you to this LMC news update? Can I thank my panellists who joined me today so we can go through a number of topics? Uh, so can I welcome Gareth Bryan, who's a GP in Wiltshire and the Deputy Chief Exec of Wessex LMC's, of Helene Irvin, who's an advanced nurse practitioner and the nurse advisor to the LMC, and also today Moira Philpott, who um, I have known for many years, who worked locally um, in NHS England, but now is um, one of the people in charge of PPE at the Department of Health. So she's going to join us. Um, she joined us in the panel, but we'll talk to her a bit more in a session about PPE. So for today, can I ask you to keep your um, uh, computers on mute? Um, if you have any questions, if you can put them in the Q&A box, not in the chat box, we will keep an eye on it and we will answer some questions at the end. Um, and uh, we will get straight on with the agenda. So next slide, please. So I'm gonna talk a bit about the current state of COVID. We'll cover COVID vaccination. We'll talk a bit about what used to be called the COVID virtual ward, but has been given a new name, the PPE, uh, a bit about workload shift and management of long-term conditions. And within that comes cancer. So the next slide, please. So, as you know, I'm sure many of you watch the news, we're getting about 20,000 cases per day um, in the UK, and that's increasing. So far, about 900,000 people have been infected, um, and that's about 6% of the population. What we don't know is how many have had COVID, but haven't had a test, and therefore that number could be higher than that. What is interesting is if you look at the first wave of COVID versus we're now in the second wave, the number of hospital admissions and the mortality rate is much lower during the second wave than it was during the first wave. During the first wave, there was something like 3,000 admissions occurring uh, over a period of time, whereas it's about a third of that at the moment. Yet, if you look at the numbers, we've reached the first peak, and certainly in Hampshire and Isle of Wight, we're about 40% higher and nationally about 64% higher. So if you then look at the number of cases, currently the average in England is 137 cases per 100,000. You can see for Hampshire, Dorset and Wiltshire, we're below that. Although on the news last night, the Director of Public Health in Dorset was suggesting that Bournemouth, Pool and Christchurch is up over 120 per 100,000. Um, and you can see there for Bournemouth is about 197 per 100,000 and may go into lockdown, may go into tier two at the end of this week if numbers don't fall. If you look around our patch, it is quite different. So if you look at Bath uh, and Bristol are quite high, um, and one area of Portsmouth, Fratton is quite high. Um, but if you look at the Isle of Wight, the levels are quite low. So it is quite patchy, and there's more in the urban areas than there are in the rural areas. And you won't be surprised if you look at Exeter, Bath and Bristol, all university towns. But what is worrying people is when you look at the people who are now testing positive, this isn't just occurring in the younger age group. It's now occurring in the over 50s and we're getting increased numbers of uh, elderly people who are developing COVID. So we're definitely in the second wave. There are predictions that um, we're going to hit a peak, which might be twice or three times as high as the first wave. And that for um, if you take Wessex as a whole, it is likely that that, will, that peak is going to hit us in the next uh, four to six weeks. It may be quicker. You can see as it's spreading down from the north and you can see the levels up in Nottingham of 700 per 100,000 and what's happening in Liverpool and other areas. So um, we watch, um, I say with interest, but actually with a degree of concern. And again, this is still about trying to get people to take those measures of uh, washing their hands, um, social distancing and wearing face masks where appropriate. So uh, we're getting daily reports coming in in each of our systems about what's going on in terms of test and trace and the numbers, uh, the numbers being admitted to hospitals and um, sadly the deaths, although the deaths at the moment remain relatively small and also the number in ITU potentially being ve ventilated. And again, in our area, that's relatively low. Next slide, please. Um, so I'll hand over to Gareth to talk a bit about COVID vaccination. Thanks, Nigel. Um, 
I'm sure you've all read loads about this in the media. Um, just to put, give you the heads up, we're lo uh, locally we're taking part in the Oxford vac vaccine trial, which is based in Southampton. At our um, annual virtual annual conference next week, we've got the clinical lead coming to speak about the trial in a, and we're going to do a bit of a question and answer session with him, which will be absolutely fascinating. Um, what we do know is that there are a number of vaccines in development, currently over 200, of which there are 42 clinical trials taking place worldwide at the moment. So it's highly likely one or two will become available in the UK. We're hoping at the very earliest late December, but more realistically, probably early into next year. What we do know about the vaccine so far is that it's likely to take many months to give it. The priority groups have been um, uh, set out, uh, the preliminary groups set out by the JCVI, which is on the slide that you can see targeting first care home residents, healthcare staff, and then the individual at-risk groups based mainly on age. Most of the vaccines currently in trial have two doses. Um, the, dis the, the, the duration apart between the two doses varies from 14, 21 or 28 days. There are significant logistical issues around the vaccine, around storage complications. One of the vaccines um, that might well be launched fairly soon is a, a, a messenger RNA vaccine, which has to be stored at temperatures of about minus 71, which means that it's impossible for it to be stored in a community settings. So that will be largely managed in hospital hubs, which are being established at the moment. That obviously then leads on to distribution complications, um, which all are still being worked out. Probably it's going to be multi-dose vials initially, which has implications on how we can deliver it in the community, especially in the context of social distancing. And obviously we need a workforce to give the vaccine. Um, and I think we're all coming to the conclusion that general practice can't do it all, but it has a significant role to play. Um, Nigel and I are uh, working with NHS England in the Southwest and the Southeast um, and uh, trying to encourage for uh, there to be a, a, some sort of les in place, but it's very early days for this yet. So there are three potential delivery models. One is uh, in mass vaccination centres. So these are really going to be large uh, centres to allow for the social distancing and significant throughputs of people. So football stadiums, leisure centres, etc., um, Then there are local pop-up centres, which might well be PCN or locality based and then a centre to deal with the roving, to deal with uh, roving um, housebound care homes, hard to reach, that sort of thing. So this is definitely going to need a whole system response. I think general practices and PCNs working together with community teams will undoubtedly have a role to play in this. Um, obviously, the, the, we need to extend the workforce to deliver this, and I'm sure most of you are aware that uh, there have been significant changes in the legislation to try to achieve this. There's a lot of concern about current and future GP workload and the expertise in delivering, but the expertise in delivering large numbers of vaccinations on an annual basis is within general practice. And that's really what we've been making the point to NHS England, that cutting general practice out of this seems very foolish um, at the moment, though obviously we've got to look at the workload and the implications on general practice. We've talked to a number of GPs, practices and other LMCs, and we believe that general practice should have a role in, in the delivery of the vaccine, especially focused on those who are not housebound, but who would normally qualify for a flu vaccination and those in care homes. But we need to work carefully on the capacity and the ability of general practice to deliver it, particularly um, if we're still in an active phase of COVID. So we're carrying on with lots of, lots of meetings, lots of planning, both at ICS level and at the broader um, health um, NHS England level in the in the southwest and the southeast. So um, that's probably all I've got to say, Nigel. Okay, thanks, Gareth. Uh, next slide, please. So I just want to talk a bit about what's now called COVID optometry at home, which we called up till recently the COVID virtual ward. So if any of you haven't watched the LMC webinar, I would strongly encourage you to. For the clinicians, it will um, give you a greater understanding of COVID as a disease and the potential complications. And actually, even the non-clinicians, many practice managers and others have watched it and found it really interesting because it just um, lays out the challenge that we face. 
So if you look at this slide, this is the evidence that we've got. So if you look at the graph, what we know is that um, patients who get COVID, some of them within the first 14 days will get what's called silent hypoxia. So rather than having severe shortness of breath and marked symptoms, what happens is that their oxygen saturation drops. So if you look at the 30-day mortality, so people who die within 30 days of having COVID or suspected COVID, then if they're admitted to hospital um, by ambulance, then the mortality is about 6% if their oxygen saturation is 95 to 100%. If it drops into what we look at in the um, oximetry basis of the amber area, which is 93 to 94%, then the mortality is about 13%. But if you have oxygen saturations of less than 93%, so you really are desaturating, then the 30-day mortality is 28%. So this is compelling evidence that silent, more, uh, silent um, hypoxia is a significant marker to mortality with COVID. And obviously those at greatest risk of that, if you look at the age profile, then the mortality of somebody in their 20s is sort of 0 0.0 something percent. But if you go up to somebody of 80 who also has other long-term conditions, then the mortality goes up significantly. So um, in the first wave, we had uh, some sites and there were a couple in Hampshire who operated this um, oximetry at home where patients were delivered a pulse oximeter, they were monitored over 14 days, and if they started to desaturate, then action was taken, whether they had a clinical review or certainly if they were dropping below 93%, they were admitted to hospital. And the idea of that is to catch people early. So now, as you will recognize, we've got better treatment. So we've got dexamethasone and the antivirals and actually the oxygen supportive treatment. So if you get in treatment early, then the outlooks will be better. So the idea of this is to try and detect those patients, the at-risk patients. And by doing so, we might avoid some admissions, but what we will do is hopefully those that need to be admitted will be in a much better clinical condition um, where active treatment will be more successful. So if we're going to do this, um, this needs to be available seven days a week and therefore you cannot deliver this at individual practice level. So uh, it also needs to be delivered at scale. So NHS England are developing this nationally and will be mandating it to be available across the whole country or strongly recommending it's available across the whole country. Um, and we are further ahead in our development and a lot of the work that was done by um, various people locally in wave one, that documentation and the experience is being used to develop this across the country. So NHS England have purchased about 200,000 pulse oximeters, about 30 pulse oximeters per 8,000 patients. So we've got thousands of these being delivered at CCG level and as we get these virtual wards up and running, then the pulse oximeters will be held and then be distributed to patients who we admit to the ward. Now, the admission to the ward, um, we will look at people who've got COVID or suspected of having COVID and are in an at-risk group. So if you look at the broad categories, those aged 65 or more, or those under 65 who may be chronic lung disease, cardiovascular disease, an ethnic minority, liver disease, people with learning disabilities, serious mental illness, and a BMI of greater than 35. Um, they are broad categories, but you will need to use your clinical judgment because if we put every single person in that group into the virtual ward, then we may um, overwhelm it. So clinical judgment is, is really important as well. So more information will come out about this. The intention, that these, these are up and running in Southampton and, and have going live, I think, uh, early next week. Um, in North Hampshire, or it may have gone live uh, at the end of this week. But by the end of November, this will be available across the whole of Wessex. Important that practices are aware of it because actually we see these patients or we will speak to them um, and we may then decide that they'll reach the criteria to be admitted to the ward. What the ward will do then is monitor them on a daily basis. The patient will report in what their oxygen saturations are and will be given some uh, information to report if they are dipping or they're getting this silent hypoxia. Um, and one of the things we're trying to work out at the moment is if we do this at scale, how do we ensure that practice is aware of what those readings are, 
um, how do we share that information with out of hours, community, the ambulance service and potentially with hospitals. So to get this up and running in breakneck speed is logistically really challenging, but we're well on the way to doing it, building on the great clinical leadership that there is across Wessex, the involvement of uh, many clinicians and managers with um, GPs playing an important role in it, working with some of our secondary care colleagues uh, like Matt Amada King, who is one of the national leads in this area. So um, um, SMI, serious mental illness for somebody that's asking. Um, that's all I've got to say about the um, virtual ward or the COVID oximetry at home, a really catchy title, but you'll see more about it will come out um, in the near future. Next slide, please. Um, so just, just to sort of recap a couple of things, the delivery model may change. So um, in Southampton, they're gonna do it via the um, uh, Federation. In North Hampshire, it's 15 practices working together, working with the hospital. In Dorset and BSW, um, in BSW, um, they're looking at a single provider um, and working collaboratively with, with that. We need a common entry criteria so that it's not different in one county from another or one practice from another. So the pathways will be a common. Um, and uh, I think the rest of it I've said. So can we have the next slide, please? Um, so I'll hand over to Helene now. Hi, good afternoon, everybody. Um, I'd like to introduce Moira Philpott, who's the Deputy Director for Primary Care for PPE. I think, Moira, are you, are you on the line? I'm Hi, here. Hi. Hi, everyone. Hi, Moira. Welcome, and thank you very much for joining us today. Um, as an LMC, we frequently get practices and individuals um, sending us queries around uh, PPE, and obviously having you here is a great opportunity for you to answer some of that with your expertise, really. So I guess the first one is, can you tell us more about what is the PPE portal? Yes, of course. Um, if I can just give you a, a, a very brief background to me, as Nigel says, I, I've, I've been around the block a few times and I've been in the NHS for about 27 years. I'm actually on secondment with the Department of Health and Social Care at the moment, working on the PPE piece of piece of work. And my remit or my instruction, my brief was to ensure that all of our colleagues in primary care have access to the right systems and the right equipment for the winter and beyond. So the PPE portal is the system that was set up um, in the height of the first wave <clears throat> in order to provide uh, PPE to our colleagues in primary care and social care. It was set up on the hoof. I don't think anybody would be, be hiding the matter that it, it was it was pretty much done overnight um, and it's been evolving ever since. So they are currently servicing about 50,000 individual practices, dental practices, um, pharmacies, and they're looking to um, up the level of optometry in there as well. So the system itself was set up for a certain number of cohorts of delivery. We were assisted by eBay. So when you go into the system, it looks very much like your average eBay site and you've got eBay logo all over the place. So please don't let that put you off. Um, and it's a way of you ordering the PPE for GP practice that is supported by the IPC and the Department of Health guidance. Now, there are a couple of websites that I will um, supply to um, Nigel for you for circulation. One of them will give you instruction on how to get into the PPE portal and the other will give you instruction on what it is you can order. Now, obviously, there are restrictions on the amount of PPE that you can order, and there are also restrictions on the items because they are items that are available to you because of the guidance. So it's to cover the COVID aspect of your day to day work rather than anything else. If you find that the PPE portal is unable to provide you with a product that you need, then you can go to the NSDR for an, for an emergency supply. Again, I'll supply you with all the contact details um, so that you can circulate them. And they will supply you within a 72-hour window an emergency supply of what items. It will be a limited number. The PPE portal, when it was set up, invitations were sent to GP practices, dental practices, pharmacies, and I believe optometrists. Um, and an invite was sent for you to sign up to the PPE portal. 
This is the way for you to get free COVID reliant PPE for the winter time up till the 31st of March and possibly beyond. So part of my role is to actively encourage you to sign up to that because then you have a regular place of getting PPE. I, I spoke to Nigel very early on in, in the call and said the plan was to have four months worth of available PPE to last us beyond the 31st of March. I can confirm that we have in excess of that. So there is plenty of PPE to go around. But what we need to do is to make sure that you are getting it because it's free. Um, and we need to make sure that you're signed up to the right service. So a couple of, of, of quibbles um, which have come to light are that in the initial instance, the invitation was sent to email addresses that were supplied by the CQC and um, another body, and I can't remember who it was, but sometimes in those cases, it'll be sort of regular uh, registered managers of organisations. And in some cases, those registered managers may have moved on. Um, so you may want to have a look in your junk boxes as well, because sometimes the invitation has gone there. The other thing I would emphasise is that just because you've had the invitation does not mean that you are registered. You need to go through a registration process. If you haven't had an email, again, I will send you the contact details. You can contact the customer support team who will talk you through how to get you registered. Okay, thank you. One of the one of the queries that's often come up is you talked about the distribution. Is yeah. there equal distribution across all practices, or am I right in thinking that you allocate a certain percentage depending on the number of patients that you have registered? A calculation was done on some. Um, it was I can't remember what the, the what the equation was, but it was done on the size of practice basically. So the levels of ordering were set according to the number of population that a practice is 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 supplying to or is providing care to. What I would say is that sometimes there's big gaps. So you you can have a practice. The the criteria can be up to two thousand or between five and ten thousand, and you and I both know that that's a huge jump. So if you feel that the levels that your particular practice have been set there is a method of you being able to question that and to up those levels particularly in an emergency situation so if your particular area became a hot spot overnight or you were running flu clinics or you were doing a piece of work that that would necessitate you having extra PPE they are very open to doing that what they ask is it's almost like putting together a business case but you can probably do it verbally as long as you can justify why you need them they are very amenable to upping those limits on a temporary basis to cover whatever the crisis is for you if you feel that there's a group of you within your area and the, the limits just are not set at the right level, you can come to me and we will push that through the process because it will mean a policy change. So if we find that we've miscalculated and you're not quite getting what you need, you will have to come through me and then I will push it up through the ranks to get it sorted for you. One of the big questions that we've been asked recently is if federations or hotspots and or hotspots can go onto the PPE portal. And it sounds very negative for me to say, I'm afraid not. But the thought process is if you become a hotspot or you are a group of practices working as a federation, what we can do is up the supply to those individual practices because the system is supporting a population of over 50,000 individual accounts and it's just not strong enough to take another set of another cohort of people. What we could do if there was an insistence that the, um, the Federation needed to be part of that and have access to order for all of the practices, we would consider it, but we would have to look at, again, a business plan. And we would also have to consider taking the individual practices off the system to allow the Federation to order on their behalf. Does that Thank help? You. Yeah, that's, that's very helpful. One of the other questions, you've obviously used the fact that it's free at the moment. Um, yeah. What about hand gel? Because we all know the importance of hand washing, but in a lot of practices, they're using hand gel in, you know, in, a, in addition to that. 
can they will that become free as part of the portal or it should, it? yes it should be available on the portal for you what i would say is that i can't guarantee you what size bottle that's going to come at the moment they are in the process of sorting out what they call skus which is basically a code number that relates to a product what we have had issues with and i think um, you'll probably appreciate in the peak of the the crisis if people wanted hand gel they got whatever we'd got in stock we're now in a position where we're starting to be a bit more particular about the size bottles that we're getting and obviously different different areas will have different uh, dispensers as well so we're trying to match the dispenser with the supply of the gel um, we've also um, we also have just recently set up um, what we're calling a GP panel where we've asked uh, representatives from LMCs across the country to join us to highlight any issues that people are having and very very early on hand gel was was identified as being an issue so we are desperately desperately trying to get that pushed through but hand gel is available but I cannot guarantee what size bottles that will come in what we have asked to be available for GP practices is the big bottle so that you can fill your dispensers but also to have a desk size that you can use at your desk and possibly a smaller size that you can put into medical bags for when you go out on a visit. Thank you. And the million dollar question, really, obviously, it's free at the moment. What about after March? What will happen then? I'm not sure. And I think it depends on what happens over the next few months. Um, there, there are obviously discussions going on, but I think that it's probably a lot further up the food chain, if you see what I mean. Um, we are being a party to small snippets of those conversations, but I don't think any decisions have been made just yet. And, and the um, products that you're supplying, I know it's, uh, if I'm right, it's type two arm masks and FFP3s and, ga and um, cap gowns. One of the questions that just come on is that when they're reinstating doing minor ops and sexual health and such like, um, will you be providing gowns clinicians to make them safer, safer during these periods of time so they are going to be with the patients for longer periods and sort of exposure to bodily fluids? I know that there has been a recent introduction of gowns onto the PPE portal. There was no intention for gowns to be um, accessible to GP practices on the basis that they felt that AGPs had been suspended during this period in GP practices. If you find that you need those gowns, and it's a need rather than a want, I'm afraid, folks, but if you can justify the need for those gowns, again, come to me and I will take it to policy to see if we can change that. If it becomes an urgent need, i.e. you're doing something in the next 24, 48 hours, again, you can go to NSDR and get an emergency supply. Thank you. Um, thank you very much. Uh, somebody else has said, well, Green hold can... On, hold on. Oh, Henry, sorry. We'll pick up the questions at the end. Okay, okay. Yeah. Moira, thank you very much for that. It's been extremely helpful. And obviously, we'll share all that information and other links on our website. You're very welcome. And if I can help anybody in any way, please don't hesitate to, to contact and I will see what I can do. Um, as I say, we're, we're taking each day as it comes because it obviously depends on how quickly the tide changes. But we will do as much as we can to facilitate any of the additional bits and pieces that you need. So thank you for taking the time to listen to me. Moira, can you. I just confirm you're going to stay on to the Q&A session at the end? I can do. Yeah, okay, no thank problem you. at all. Okay, next slide, please. So... Um, I just wanted to talk briefly um, about shift of work from secondary care, hospital waiting lists and access to diagnosis. So um, as you're all aware, during the first wave of COVID, hospitals, um, as general practice did, put a lot of routine care on hold. The consequence of that is that waiting lists became quite long um, and it's taken some time for the hospitals to gear themselves up to um, look at how they manage both their outpatients, their elective um, and their emergency stuff was obviously going ahead anyway. And the challenge to that is they've, the, the number of people who are waiting more than 18 weeks, but also uh, the number who've been waiting for um, intervention surgery of more than 52 weeks has increased significantly. So NHS England asked secondary care to look at um, both their waiting times in outpatients uh, and the numbers are waiting, the access to diagnostics and also the elective care, uh, and certainly get the outpatients back up to 100% provision by October. So many of our hospitals, and we've got an 11 acute trusts across Wessex, have worked really hard to address their outpatient backlog. Um, and they've done that through 
remote consultation, the same as general practice. They don't use AccuRx, they use different systems, but they've done uh, a significant number of online consultations. Um, in some areas, what's happened as a result of that, the patients need blood tests or need some sort of follow-up, and the hospitals um, occasionally have then passed that work to general practice. Our belief is that is not appropriate, that this work needs to be remain if the patient's under the care of secondary care, um, they can order x-rays, blood tests, and arrange for the patient to be seen face-to-face if that needs to happen. Now, um, I'll say I'm pleased to say, but um, in, in many of our areas, the hospitals have been quite um, good about doing that and also provided better access through Consultant Connect and other means to consult and advice. Advice and guidance can be really helpful um, so long as it's not there as a barrier just to move work back into secondary care. Um, so there is a bit about the outpatients. The diagnostics obviously are difficult because of social distancing and PPE. And that's particularly true of endoscopy, where the endoscopy waits were, were getting significantly longer because it was seen as an aerosol generating procedure and all endoscopy was stopped for a couple of months. But they're trying to expand that and restart um, endoscopy in a rather than just do the normal activity levels, increase that above and beyond and train more people to do it. So you'll see that um, up until um, recently that the expansion of the hospital-based service is trying to address those waiting times and particularly the people who are waiting over um, 52 weeks. The challenge may be, and you may have seen it reported in the news over the last couple of days, um, in the north of the country, Leeds and Liverpool, I think, have stopped doing routine care because they're getting overwhelmed with COVID patients. The challenge with that is we know that um, during the first wave, people came to irreversible harm with non-COVID-related conditions um, because they weren't uh, being able to, um, some of it, they weren't being able to access care because hospitals weren't doing routine care. Some of it were patients were trying to be really kind and not present with stuff they would have presented before. And some of it is that patients declined investigations and treatment where they were available because the fear of COVID was greater than their fear of the disease they've, they've had. Um, what I would also say um, within that is if you look at the cancer stuff, um, we have got back up to our two-week weights fell by up to 70% in the early stage of wave, wave one. Um, we are in Wessex got up to 100% of pre-COVID two-week referrals and we were the best performing in the country. So our cancer um, uh, waiting lists and our referrals and also access to treatment, whether it be chemotherapy, uh, radiotherapy or surgery has been relatively good for cancer. Um, but looking at some other long-term conditions, uh, there are concerns. If you look at the number of people who presented with myocardial infarctions, for example, it went down initially um, and we had weekends when nobody presented to coronary care units in secondary care, which has never happened before. But we're now seeing the consequence of that and some people uh, have come to harm as a result of that. So, um, you know, they're really important areas and we're keen to work with um, our hospital colleagues to make sure that our patients don't come to harm, but also um, the capacity, many of your report has been reached in general practice. And what we can't do is just move the work that was previously taken on by hospitals and push that into general practice. Gareth, do you want to talk a bit about the waiting list um, work that's being done in secondary care? Yeah, um, it, part of the problem that the trusts have is obviously they've got large numbers of people on waiting lists, many of whom have now completely breached the waiting list targets and um, a lot of, have been waiting for over a year. So there, obviously there is a process of list size of, of waiting list reconciliation that needs to be done. We have had some uh, instances reported to us where that, they were suggested that that would be pushed onto general practice, which is, of course, completely not a non-starter. So um, there's some guidance produced by NHS England at the beginning of October around the processes of that. And we're starting to see that work being done by the commissioners now about how they're going to do this. And it might involve them writing to patients to see whether they, A, still need the procedure, 
or B, um, whether they're prepared to have the procedure given the state of COVID. Now, obviously, that's going to vary. So we're, uh, the letters, as far as I'm aware, have not gone out, certainly in BSW, and I don't think they've gone out in Hampshire yet, though I believe Hampshire might be slightly further down the road than, than BSW. Um, but they are going to contact patients to see whether or not their procedure is still needed or whether they're prepared to actually go into hospital. So that's one thing. The other thing I would say about um, the secondary care work coming into primary care would be that we need to we need to make it clear to clear to the commissioners about the effect that that's having on general practice. Um, we received quite a few emails into the LMC office um, complaining about inappropriate transfer of work, but actually we need to make sure that we're feeding that back to the commissioners, so that the commissioners are a aware of the volume and b have the opportunity to try to do something about it, such as. Um, commissioning additional resources into into primary care. Um, so, so those are the, the couple of points on that. But I think we have to accept, as Nigel says, that we have to face this as a system and we can't all go retreat into our silos and bouncing work around because the work's got to be done. The most important thing is that it's done in the most appropriate place and that the resource is there to do it. And we've had discussions with a number of medical directors that what we don't want is the patients to be told if they phone up and get through to the hospital to be told, go to your GP who can write a letter to expedite your care when there's no change in clinical condition. So one of the things, uh, one of the messages within the hospitals is to tell the medical secretaries and others not to do that, um, that if their clinical condition deteriorates, they can report that to the hospital or they may decide um, that the GP, you know, the GP may want to review them, but it's not a case of I've been waiting uh, longer than I want to, so please write a letter because it'll put me further up the waiting list because it won't. The other bit I'd just quickly say is um, if you look at the diagnostic access we have, uh, the number of CT scans per 100,000 population MRI is significantly lower than other Western countries. So a report that came out last week was looking to develop community-based diagnostic hubs which will then mean in the future that we should, as GPs, have better access to diagnostic services that will be um, available in the community rather than managed by the hospital. But to do that, they're going to train, I think, 2,000 more radiographers and radiologists as well, because we need that capacity. Um, next slide, please. Um, I've talked a bit about um, the, the irreversible harm. I, I would just like to point out um, which I'm sure you're aware, um, although COIF has been um, protected in terms of the 310 points um, in some of the areas of long-term conditions, uh, there is increasing evidence coming out, particularly with things like cardiovascular disease, that people who are not being managed and their control is not ideal are coming to harm. So although um, we may have looked in wave one to have stopped some of the routine work. I would just encourage people uh, as we've moved to more uh, online consultations and remote consultations, please don't forget the people with long-term conditions. Um, prioritize looking at the most vulnerable, the ones that are likely to come to most harm, uh, but we shouldn't forget those. And again, you know, with cancer, I would just encourage people uh, to refer people who they are concerned about. I mean, the good news for us, I said about the two week waits, but also, Recent evidence showed that if you look at the emergency presentations of cancer, that um, 35 of the CCGs, that situation has worsened over the last year. But two of our CCGs have significant, significantly improved, and that's the Isle of Wight uh, and Southampton, who are in the top five in the country in terms of um, uh, the, the reduction in the number of people. So we don't want people to you know, present uh, to A&E as an emergency uh, with a cancer that's undiagnosed. I mean, it's unavoidable. Not everybody is going to present clinically beforehand, um, but those are good news stories. Uh, there are lots of good news stories in general practice. I think if you look around about what is being delivered at the moment, and if I look at the work we've been doing on the COVID virtual ward or COVID pulse optometry at home, it is amazing the clinical leadership, the willingness to... Um, develop services and respond to the needs of our patients, which is a great testament to general practice and doesn't, I'm afraid, get reflected in the um, what happens in the media, particularly the national media who seem 
uh, intent on criticizing uh, all and sundry. Uh, next slide, please. Okay, so we've got a number of questions. If you've got any questions, please could you post them in the Q&A box? So Myra, Gareth, Helena, myself will go through the um, questions and see if we can answer them. So Gareth, let me ask you the first one. Um, will there be a nasal COVID vaccine for children? Um, yes, there probably will, but not for a while. Um, the last time, the last ever stuff I saw on that said there were five or six intranasal uh, vaccines being tested. There's one in China, which is quite interesting, where they're using a flu virus carrying genetic seg segments of the COVID-19 spike. Um, but that isn't in phase one trials yet. That's starting in November, based in a, in uh, Beijing and Hong Kong. So I think the the, the initial vaccines are not intranasal. Um, but I think in the future, we may well see this because I think it's becoming clear from, uh, or potentially clearer from the issue around the uh, antibodies which came out in, in, the, in the press yesterday that we may have to have repeated vaccinations against coronavirus. So if we can do them intranasally, that will be a good thing. And it may not be just for children either. And this is where the vaccine thing is, I think, fascinating because I've also um, read and heard that we might not vaccinate the whole population. Yeah. Because yeah. if you look at the risk to children and younger adults, then they, it tends to be um, much, or very few children would come to harm and they are exceptional cases. Um, but again, you know, if you look at the long COVID argument, what we don't know is how many young people who get it, um, whether they have long-term consequences of it. Yes, exactly. I think that's 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 exactly right. That there's still much that we don't know yet. Um, it's the um, are the, I mean, even in the vaccine trials, are they looking at the right outcome measures in the trials? Because yeah. the the problem is, is that the 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 numbers of cases are still of en who end up in hospital are still relatively low. So you need huge sample size to test the effectiveness of the vaccine. Um, and whether or not it does prevent death or hospital admission are not the primary endpoints. The primary endpoints in the trials are, are simply whether or not you've, you develop COVID. So there's much that we don't know, and we might well have to face that we, that, 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 the, this, the vaccination, which is, you know, the, the world is bet, has bet its house on the, on the vaccine being the way out of the pandemic. Um, we might have to start it without knowing the, 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 the full impact of the, of the, of the vaccines. And that so have you got any, knowledge will develop over time. Have you got any comments about what, you know, um, as time goes on, the risk is that we um, don't take, I mean, it's not that we don't take it seriously, but we relax some of the measures we put in place. So have you got any general advice or practices about what we need to be mindful of? In terms of you know, preventing COVID transmission? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's really all those basic things that we put in place right at the beginning to keep going with it, that it is, it is comes back to the basics of, of risk management and you've got to do a risk assessment. You've got to put the control measures in place and then you've got to make sure that people are actually following them because it's, it's absolutely true. We become very complacent um, or we potentially become complacent very quickly. Um, I was listening to Tom Black, who's a GP in Northern Ireland on the GPC on the radio yesterday and one part of Northern Ireland went from the lowest instance in the country to the highest instance in the country within a couple of weeks. Um, and his, his um, argument for that was basically it's because people, for, people just became complacent. And I think that's the, you know, all of the risk, all of the, all of the control measures that we talk about around PPE, et cetera, they, they generally fail because people don't use them properly. Um, and, and it's constantly, just constantly keeping that pressure up to make sure that we're all on our guard at all times. And I, I like that term control measure because that's the thing that um, we need to, to be clear about. I mean, we did have a practice in Dorset that um, had um, a potential outbreak, but actually doing the investigation that Public Health England did, the practice had done all the control measures properly and kept those in place. So. Um, a potential disaster was averted. But I would just also encourage people, you know, when you're all going for coffee um, or you're having lunch together, you need to be socially distanced, wearing PPE, 
Because actually, if you don't and you drop your guard and you just think, well, it doesn't apply to me, it's quite easy to forget all those things. Um, and then if one member of staff or more than one uh, catch COVID, you're potentially significantly at risk. Mm. Okay, let's let's move on. Um, do you want to do the next? Ask the next question, Gareth. Okay. Um, so, when might the COVID virtual ward be starting? Well, um, I think I said before, by the end of November, they should be up and running everywhere. Some will be live now um, and others will um, come online probably in the middle of this month. Uh, what, what we said quite clearly is what we can't do is solve every single problem um, in terms of, for example, the IT, the governance. Some of it we need to go and develop it as we're doing it and not wait till... January, February time when we've got sort of various committees all signed everything off um, and we've really missed the boat and we that that old saying we hit the target and missed the uh, or hit the target and missed the point um, so I think you'll see it happen over the next two to four weeks mm. okay um, Helene do you want to take the next one I think we've covered that largely haven't we I mean that I think if we go back, Moira, I mean, I think what we discussed on the advisory group was the the gowns are really there for aerosol generating procedures. Yeah. And currently, um, we're still waiting for clarification about, for example, spirometry, which although PHE have said is not aerosol generating, other national bodies um, haven't agreed with that. Uh, but if you are going to do something like that in practice, you, there are not only PPE requirements, but also you've got to leave the room vacant for a certain length of time afterwards. So it becomes a, a real challenge. So um, as Moira said earlier, I think the, the answer there is only order what you need, not necessarily what you want. OK, um, Moira, a question for you about the uh, green Clinel wipes, which are used extensively in general practice, are they part of the um, PPE uh, supply? I've not uh, seen them on the list, actually. No, I haven't. Um, sorry, let me make a note and I'll uh, see if we can... Are the sort of antiviral, antimicrobial wipes that are used in practice? I suspect practices are using significant amounts of them as they clean down their desk after each patient. Sure. Okay, I'll have a look for you and I'll, I'll come back. Okay, so let's go on to the next one, which probably is a bit of a panel discussion. So um, being that the rate has doubled in the last week, why are we not um, pressing, as Essex did last week, into going into a higher level of lockdown? Germany is suggesting a lockdown at a much lower level and indeed earlier in the year Leicester uh, was restricted at 70, 70 per 100,000. If we don't do something, the results will be inevitable. What options do we have as a system? So, I mean, if I start off the discussion, um, just to be clear, lockdown is not done on the numbers alone. They look at a number of other factors. So one of it, so if you look at the student population, they were at one stage had a rate of 3,000 per 100,000. Hence why the university towns are quite... Um, prominent in the map that we look at it. Um, if people are putting questions in the chat, can you put them in the Q&A? Because that's what we're going to go through. Um, so what they look at is the age of the people that are being tested positive. So if the higher numbers of older people, then that is a factor. And they'll add a number of uh, other things um, into that before they make a decision. So uh, any other uh, comments, Gareth? No, I think that I think that covers it. I mean, I think the whole the whole efforts of it are trying to make this fit the locality and the and and where it's happening and what and there are many variables to it other than just the raw number. Um, but I do I do share Matt's kind of concern that you know the evidence seems to be you know becoming clearer and clearer that once the numbers reach a certain level and you get transmission into the older population from the younger population then the inevitable rise in hospitalization and the inevitable rise in deaths four weeks down the line is 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 what happens and i think that's that's what's frustrating but 
you know, I wouldn't like to be the person having to make these decisions because they're extremely difficult to make. And I think, you know, the, the challenge, the two other factors are um, people get fatigued with the lockdown and then start breaking the rules and also the economic devastation that it potentially could cause. It's a, I mean, I, I agree with Gareth. I think it's a horrendous balance to try and do. But you're also right, Matt, if you look at the level um, where Leicester was locked down, there are many parts of the country that are above that at the moment. And that goes back when I've asked that question nationally, goes down to if you look at um, the pockets in Leicester where those levels were um, higher than that. And of course, some of these figures are looking at quite big areas. Um, so drilling down to parts of a city, for example, and again, you know, that's why they are considering locking down or moving into tier two, Bournemouth, Christchurch and Poole, because of the increasing numbers, but also the number of older people that are getting infected, not just the students at Bournemouth University. Um, just let's move on to that. Do all health systems have to prioritise COVID vaccination according to the JCVI criteria? Any idea, Gareth? I don't think I don't think it's clear yet. These the, the criteria are, are the initial recommendations. I don't think it's been set into any kind of standard operating procedure yet, but the vaccine is going to be centrally procured and centrally distributed. So I'm sure the criteria will be fairly tight, certainly in the initial cohorts. I agree. And um, you know, Julian, I think the other bit is that there's also a um if you look at um, the risk of COVID, there's potentially a public order um, issue if um, we don't have a really clear directive of what we're doing and how it needs to be followed. The more freedom you have, the more pressure that puts on people to make decisions locally. Um, I mean, my own reflection would be, I think, some of the health and care workers who are really in the high-risk areas may be... Um, put up to the higher level and the early bit, not just the people in care homes. But again, that's a balanced decision, which um, I would hope that nationally uh, will be mandated in terms of this is the order you do it in and then we'll get on and do it. Yeah, and I think it's really important that the, that the you know, it is targeted at the groups that are most likely to benefit. Yeah. You know, we have to do the greatest good for the greatest number. Um, and if we start you know, varying that and, and having local pressures put on us by individuals or group or groups that don't fit that criteria, it's going to end up in a mess very quickly. And is that is that right? Is that what we should be doing as, as a society? Yeah. Um, somebody's congratulating the Isle of Wight and Southampton about the early diagnosis of cancer. What can we learn from them? Can we identify changes in practice? Yes, we're looking at that at the moment. And again, I would just encourage everybody that we, you know, we, we, we pride ourselves on holistic care of patients. And although I think COVID is really important, we shouldn't forget all the other things. And actually, we'll, we'll share as much information as we get. Um, and also the positive stuff that, you know, I, I still think being GP is a fantastic job, despite all the challenges we've got at the moment. But we, it, it, it is not always recognised the good you do for your patients and your population. And we may not have shiny buildings in hospitals with nice um, big machines that make lots of noise um, and, you know, get on the news all the time. But um, as Simon Stevens and others have said, if general practice fails, the NHS has failed. So as we go into this part of wave two, to my mind, the critical bit that we must get right is primary and community care, general practice um, and our community colleagues. That's where the battle will be won and lost, not in the ITU. Um, Liz has asked, we, in her practice, they've done some outbreak scenario testing. Um, has anyone else done that? If so, can we share lessons? So I'll just put that as a rhetorical question. I don't know if you're aware of that, any people doing that, Helene. Um, but if people are doing that and they're happy to share with the LMC, we're quite happy to share that in one of our news updates. Yeah, that'd be, that'd be really good. We do have a standard operating procedure yeah. document produced for an outbreak in general practice, though, which might be a good place to start for people planning doing this kind of exercise. Yeah, that was shared, I think, um, last week or the week before, I think, in one of the practice manager webinars. And that, as Gareth said, that should be on our website. And that's really helpful, particularly if something happens at the weekend. 
um, and how easy it is to access um, and to sort of start the ball going. And it's, it's, it's proved to be very effective. Helene, do you want to take the next one from Mark? Is this about face masks and face yeah. coverings? <laughs> <laughs> We're all laughing, as you can see, because we've had some heated debates about this over the last few days. And we absolutely agree. We have read through so many documents about what is a face covering, what is a face mask. And, you know, is it a type 1, 2, 3, X, Z or Q? We don't know, really. Um, and also how, um, you know, homemade masks, how effective are those? And it is something we're going to take up uh, nationally, actually, to try and get some guidance on it, because it's very ambiguous. Um, and they, they talk about different settings and environments. So, you know, a typical scenario is you have somebody, an admin staff working in office by themselves. Uh, what type of mask or face covering do they have to use? So we're and is that obviously that'll be different than walking around the building. So we are pursuing that. We're trying to get some clarity around it. And when we do, we promise we will share it with you because we'd like to know just as just as much as you would, because it is very ambiguous at the moment. Because I think from Moira's point of view, if um, everybody who's in general practice has to wear a surgical face mask, the number of face masks being used daily will increase hugely, particularly um, if you, you know, as a clinician, you wear them for a session. But if you're um, in a, an environment where you can take it off, theoretically, well, not theoretically, but if you take it off, you shouldn't put it back on again. So um, if you're in an office working outside the NHS, you can wear a cloth face mask, but is that face covering or is that a face mask? If it's three layers thick, then it gives you a protection, then is that enough? So all those questions, I promise you, um, I wouldn't say it was a heated discussion, Helen. I just said it was a robust discussion. Okay, let's, let's use the word animated. Should we do right, that? Okay, sorry, animated. Uh, we didn't come to a conclusion um, and we thought we'd seek uh, expert advice. And on the group that I sit on with Moira, we had a bit of a discussion about that and um, we, we are going to try and clarify that. Do you want to make any comments, Moira? No, I think you've covered it all, actually, Nigel. Um, Sue was asked um, the numbers of COVID patients being admitted to local hospitals. Um, my intelligence across certainly Dorset and Hampshire is the numbers being admitted are still relatively low. They are going up a bit, but um, as of uh, early this week, I think in Hampshire, there were six people being ventilated, which if you go back to when we're at the peak of wave one, the number in critical care and ITU being ventilated, although we didn't get to the numbers where um, we would be concerned that we were, you know, all the beds would be full. They're significantly less now than they were at that stage. And it's interesting to know quite why that is. And I'm not sure, um, as Gareth said earlier, I'm not sure anybody is 100% sure. The only thing we can be absolutely certain is the researchers and the epidemiologists and everything are, are going to have a um, wealth of information to research and write papers and documents and books on after we get through, hopefully, um, not only the second wave, but we we defeat this virus and, and the impact it's had. Um, any, any comments about that? So, um, Gareth, do GPs, the families of GPs fall into the rest of the population levels of priority? I suspect that's for... Um, vaccination yeah i mean i suspect they i suspect they do i mean essentially it's healthcare workers who get the vaccines um so i think that's i mean we don't know yet but i that would be my feeling i think that um it, it's it's really healthcare workers to reduce exposure one of the interesting things i thought yesterday that came out in the um, debate over antibodies was that healthcare workers seem to have a more prolonged antibody response than non-healthcare workers which might be due to low levels of repeated exposure which is really interesting but no in answer to that question i think they probably will fall into the rest of the population and uh, mark's asked about the research yesterday about antibodies falling off quickly um they are small numbers in what were reported yesterday but we we had that had been reported to us earlier on because we know people who were excluded from the vaccine trial because they had antibodies who were then tested later in their trust and didn't have antibodies so um as it's a coronavirus similar to the flu virus it may be that immunity won't be like uh, measles or something that it will wear off so we may need an annual vaccination but again I think that's 
part yeah. of why the vaccine trials are really important, not just jabbing somebody, you've got an immune response, end of trial, these people are being followed up. And I think what we don't know, we don't understand yet is, is T-cell response and how that will affect this. So we might see, and some vaccines seem to provoke, promote a far greater T-cell response than other vaccines. So again, they're, they're, they're learning about this, but if we're relying on the antibodies, then, then yes, probably we are looking at re repeated vaccinations, but I think just don't think we know that the data is not there yet. Okay, funding for AccuRx, I mean, that's for video consultations have been funded till April and there's a review going on at the, the moment. Um, uh, there are other providers, AccuRx are just one of many, and I think CCGs are looking at it and there's quite a lot of pressure nationally to say um, this should be made available through the um, IT budget, um, uh, but that's work that's ongoing. I think um, if we're being expected to deliver online consultations, we need the tools for the trade. Um, ah. Helene, children symptoms of cough and fever, should they be seen at the hot site? Uh, I think that's a, a clinical assessment, really. I think it depends. I, oh, I don't know. I'm not sure I can answer that. Okay, there is advice on our website, which came out through uh, the paediatricians, the LFC and the CCGs working in Hampshire. The big message is children don't generally become very unwell with COVID. So don't assume that every child with a temperature has got COVID because other childhood serious illnesses do occur. And sadly, in the first wave, some children were missed. So I, I think probably, Gareth, what we'd probably say is um, risk assess, um, do what you would do for children. They don't need to all be brought in. Certainly, you wouldn't bring somebody in with COVID as a child just because they've got COVID. It's more about the clinical situation if you would see them, um, then, then do so. I think the challenge is, um, do you bring all people who are pyrexial into a hot site? And again, the risk there is they might not have COVID. You bring them into a hot site and expose them to COVID. And I think, again, that's about making the clinical judgment about where's the most appropriate place to see them. Um, we, Mark's question, which we slightly skipped over, was about eye protection and visors. Um, any views on that, Helene? I think it depends on the procedure you're undertaking, whether there's any risk of uh, splash and things like that. Um, so I think, again, that's an individual risk assessment that you have to um, undertake because it's also protection of the patient as well as yourself. So I think uh, individuals have to make that assessment. I right, think in so, some sites yeah. they're still using, um, they are using masks, I believe. Uh, and, I know, and I know having used a mask, they do make your glasses steam up. Um, there are ways around it with eye protection. But I think, again, it's I know lots of GPs do not wear eye protection. Um, but again, I think it's that risk assessment that, you know, as a mucosal membrane, it is a route in for the virus. So um, I think people need to be very careful. You can actually get some spray that's been recommended to use on the visors to stop them steaming up. Um, I think it's very similar to the one that people use on some of their ski goggles. Um, okay. And it's, it's quite cheap. So that's an option. We're, I know we're just past two o'clock, but we'll just go on for five more minutes and see if we can get through the questions for those who want to stay on. Um, have you, for Anonymous, have you any influence to ask NHSE to put out a statement to say how hard GPs are working? Um, and all, uh, as all they have said is that GPs are open for business. Um, I think you're overestimating my influence, but I can assure you I've had conversations with the Department of Health and NHS England to reaffirm actually how hard general practice is working the amazing things that are going on and it would be great if um, I have to say it's it's the media more than anybody but if if we could get some good news stories in the media and people um, didn't criticize without knowing the facts of what they're doing the whole debate about general practice being closed I mean I don't need to tell anybody on this call that we're using total triage to protect patients and protect our staff and our clinicians. We're seeing people face to face who clinically need to. I know video consultations, some people like, people don't like as well, but we're, this is all about safety. So um, I will keep um, pressing the message. I know information produced by the CCG working with the LMC about the positive things happening in general practice um, in Hampshire and in Dorset and in Wiltshire have gone down incredibly well and spread most uh, widely. 
But then if you look in the GP media yesterday, there's really disappointing and quite upsetting graffiti put on a practice in Bristol um, being really rude about the GPs. And I just think people um, just don't realise, um, or if they do realise, um, they're very selfish and self-centred and, and um, are not willing to acknowledge what um, many people, not just GPs, but other people, practice managers, other practice staff, other people in the health service, and people like Moira who are working really hard to try and ensure that we get the equipment we need. It's really easy to be critical. Um, quite often I will say to people, so if you were in charge, what would you do? How would you make it better? Um, and I think, uh, you know, I, I would just say everybody uh, needs recognition of what they're doing. Um, long, COVID, long COVID as a condition, yes, they are developing local services, but it's still very poorly understood. And many of the or well, the clinics I know that are being established are really being done on a research and on a, uh, a basis of people wanting to learn more about it. Um, so we've done that. Uh, yeah, the only thing I would add to that, Nigel, is that from what we're learning about long COVID, it's going to have to be the full multidisciplinary team approach because, it, yeah. because of the, the variety of presentations with long COVID. So I think we've answered most of the questions. Um, I apologise for running over slightly, but thought it was probably useful to try and get through those questions. Can I thank the other panellists? Can I thank Moira for joining us and giving up her valuable time and for Helene and Gareth giving up their time um, and listening to me whitter on again. So uh, many thanks for your time and hopefully for the people who've been on the webinar, you found it useful. We are recording it and we will make it available to others if uh, they're interested and it's helpful. So thank you very much and uh, uh, hopefully the rest of the day will go well for you and that you have a, a good rest of the week. Many thanks. Wessex LMCs supporting you and your practice. <laughs>